Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to your book to the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. If you're listening to this on Monday the 6th of March, my book Careering comes out in paperback this week on Thursday the 9th. It's a romantic comedy featuring work as the toxic partner who will never love us back. If you caught the abridged version on BBC Sounds and you're ready for the full story, you can pick it up from bookshop.org, Waterstones and Amazon. And if you buy it from your local independent bookshop, I will send you a personalised book plate with the dedication of your choice. Uh, you can order direct from the Margate Bookshop and they deliver nationwide. Just send them a message on their website. I also love the House of Books and Friends, newly open in the centre of Manchester. You can get your signed, dedicated, careering book and book plate from those guys too. My brand new novel, Limelight, a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem is coming in June. Pre-ordering will win you my eternal love and gratitude. It's a huge, huge help. A fantastic way to support me as an author and the Your Book team. And if you pre-order in hardback from bookshop.org, you'll also be entered into a prize draw to win the chance to be the featured guest on this podcast. If you've ever dreamed of sharing your shelves with listeners, this is your chance. Now on to today's guest. Catherine May's work and words have meant so much to me and brought me so much comfort and joy. She's been a dream guest for a while, so I'm really excited to share this episode with you to celebrate the publication of her brilliant new book, Enchantment. It's no secret that books have brought a huge amount of comfort and joy to Catherine. She is a real reader's reader. We talk about Sue Townsend, Jean Rees, and the way reading can restore us all. Enjoy. I can see beautiful books over your shoulder and a really beautiful looking bookcase as well. Uh, whereabouts are we? Is this your study or your reading room? Yeah. This, oh God, I wish I had a reading room. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I uh, Yeah, this is my study. So I work in our front room downstairs, which is why I get all of the people knocking on the door all the time. Um, but it's a really lovely room, actually. It's got a big window, so it's always light. Um, and uh, yeah, I just had this bookshelf built around about Christmas, so I adore it. It's pea green for anyone that's just listening and doesn't know what it looks like. It's this beautiful pea green colour. <laughs> it's really gorgeous. And I love that the there are different shelf heights to accommodate yes. all the different books. So um, 
I'd love to hear about what's on there. I can't quite make out any spines, <laughs> but do you have any any favourites or any recent additions? Oh God, endless recent additions. Um, so that is my non-fiction bookcase. Uh, oh, this room is all, <laughs> all my non-fiction bookcases uh, and I have all my fiction in the other room. Um, I read a lot of books, but I definitely buy more books than I read. And I like, I, you know, I like the idea of making a library. Like quite often when I'm buying books, I'm buying them because I want to put my hand on them at a later date and I don't want to lose track of them. Uh, but recently I have just bought up the complete works of Shirley Hazard. That's my, that's my plan for the new year um, because I've never read her before. So Amazing. I've never read her. Tell me yeah. about Shirley Hazard. I, I can't tell you She's anything. got a brilliant name. <laughs> So she was she was a novelist writing in the 80s and 90s. Um, the book that I'm going to read first, I think, is The Transit of Venus, which is, uh, you know, one of those, you know, those kind of Virago books in the 90s that, uh, you know, just seemed so kind of out of reach to me when I was a teenager. And now I'm beginning to, to read my way through them. And I gather she's a a fantastic novelist that we've kind of forgotten, but she did feature on, on a couple of booker lists over the course of her life. So she's ripe for rediscovery, really. But I couldn't tell oh, you anything about fantastic. her yet. fantastic. But that, that sort of clever, sexy sounding, I feel that way a bit about Faye Weldon, um, who I've yeah. never really read, to be honest, and sort of always been aware of that kind of yeah. grown up and sort of, you know, quite glam and quite adult, but just the intellectual side of yeah. trashy. I and I just went straight for the trashy, to be honest. Well, no, I mean, uh, don't we all? But <laughs> but there's that, it's that thing of, like, the books that are around when you're coming of age as a reader, or just before, actually, when you're surveying the adult reading scene and wondering what books you could read, and they seem, like, really untouchable at that point. Um, and I, yeah, so I kind of, I recognise the covers, actually, now I've bought them up but I they probably wouldn't have been right for me at that age so I'm I'm really looking forward to delving into her work. So I'd love to hear more about your relationship with books because it sounds as though reading in books that was something you were always very aware of and they were important visually. Do you remember kind of early trips to libraries and things like that? Yes I mean I I grew up in a house that didn't have loads of books um, but I was like one of the kids that kind of read spontaneously and at the time um, <laughs> my mum was told by the health visitor to hold me back from reading, like I shouldn't be allowed to read yet, you know. Oh, well, so how old were you and what was the health visitor I don't know. About? I guess I was like three or something and I just kind of figured it out myself. Um, and yeah, I, my mum said it was just common at the time. Like they said, like, you've got to wait till she gets to school and then they'll teach her to read properly. Like I was, I was going to be reading in the wrong way somehow. Um, but there were, you know, we always had loads of children's books. But then as I got older, like my mum wasn't a reader. So there weren't the books to graduate into. And I remember reaching like a really difficult age, kind of maybe 10, 11, 12, when I was definitely too old for kids books, but I didn't know where to go yet. Like there didn't seem to be any signposts. And of course, now there's all these amazing young adult books, which I just think I'd have loved that so much. Um, but my my gran was a great reader and she divided her reading between Catherine Cookson and Stephen King. And so I went the Stephen King route. She gave me a load of Stephen King. And I, you know, the first Stephen King I read was Carrie, which is just 
so wonderfully relevant to an awkward early teenage girl. I thought she was just the best heroine I'd ever read. Um, and so for years, I, I kind of read horror, really. Because <laughs> it's electrifying, isn't it? Yes. I've never loved a Stephen King book like I loved Carrie, which felt in a way like perfect YA to me at the time. I wouldn't have known that then or thought of that then, but yeah. it felt like the first book that talks to and about teenage girls as though we're powerful. I still yeah. feel like a teenage girl aged 37. Absolutely. I mean, you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are bits of it that don't feel accurate like looking back but he did capture something about that very angsty experience and I I have to say I, I found it like thrilling to think that she could enact this revenge you know it was yeah and so after that I read every Stephen King um, and every James Herbert um, and about that time a library opened up in my village we hadn't had one before and it was a tiny library and I just, I read everything in it that, that was interesting to me, but there was a lot of romance, which has just never been my thing and, and still isn't really. Um, and then I realised that I could go home from secondary school via a big town. So I used to go to Chatham Library instead and they had some much more interesting books. And that, yeah, that's when I began to get going, I think. Oh, fantastic. I can imagine that thrill of being, oh, no, wait, there's, there's an even bigger room. There's a much bigger <laughs> centre full of books I've not read I yet. No, And they, I, I, I went there with a friend, my friend Vicky, who was a, a very kind of accomplished reader. And I remember standing in front of these shelves and just thinking about the ideas they contained. And she was picking up kind of Jean-Paul Sartre, which I just thought was just frightfully glamorous and intellectual. Um, and I remember the first book I picked up from those shelves was a book called Sweet Death, uh, which was about a woman trying to eat herself to death. I can't even remember the author. Um, but I I was like, wow, there's this dark invitation to adult thoughts right here. Uh, and yeah, it, it just was a piece of magic to me completely. What a name. You know, that's enough, I yeah. think, to make you pick something up. 13-year-old me was like, I'm having that. <laughs> oh, I think those first experiences with libraries and tried very hard to remember like the privilege of sort of being in a bookshop and thinking, in theory, I could, you know, pick up anything I wanted and buy it and go home and read. And that sort yeah. of the freedom, but also you're a bit restrained because there are only so many things you can get out on a library card, but also you've got no context for anything and there's no oh I should read this and this yeah. is one of these prizes or whatever you know that Sartre is sort of glamorous and sophisticated but other than that you're just reacting to the books Definitely. themselves and what you think they promise yes and the lack of kind of shame or pressure or a backstory of any kind I mean I I read really randomly and and in the course of that you know I picked up Angela Carter, um, and I picked up Ben Ocree, um, and then I remember my grandma who, you know, she was she was always involved in these big exchanges of carrier bags of books, like they used to get passed around like contraband because <laughs> she'd read, you know, 12 or 13 books a week quite often. Um, and she passed on The Unbearable Lightness of Being, um, which I just, I couldn't understand a bloody word of it. But also I thought it was amazing. <laughs> and then I got obsessed with the English patient. And that, I think, 
was like a really, that was the moment that really changed me, I think, the English patient, because it was so romantic and so clever. And I think I was like 14, maybe, when I read it. And I remember sitting on the front step of my house in the summer reading this and having deeply pretentious thoughts about what it would make me become and trying to like memorise whole paragraphs of it so I could quote them. <laughs> oh, that's such an exciting feeling, isn't it? When your horizons <laughs> are expanding and you can feel everything unfolding behind you. Definitely. I'm curious because you said about not being hugely into romances and obviously the English, pa- the English patient, mm. which I've never read. Um <gasps> I must admit, but now I will. Um, (laughs) As far as I'm aware, there's a lot going on in that story, but it does have a big romance at its heart. Yeah, there's there's also a bit of hinted necrophilia as well, which I remember kind of reading that page a few times thinking, really, after all this, (laughs) like, loveliness? I don't think the romance for me was the relationship between the Count and the, the woman. I think it was the romance of the setting and the kind of the staging of it um I don't know there was something just so perfect about that whole environment and the tragicness that was there and I know like a lot of people at the time were really into Wuthering Heights and I I think it was like my Wuthering Heights you know doomed romance but it's not really necessarily about that relationship that draws you to it it's more about the idea that life could happen on this kind of grand meaningful scale which I think really I think that speaks to teenage girls because you feel so insignificant at that point oh, that makes so much sense the the grandness of it and mm. that sort of inevitable it's so interesting isn't it that I think that when we are teenagers our capacity almost for kind of you know doom and tragedy Oh God, um, we, love we that can't get enough of it and then when we get a bit older and we've seen some of it it can be almost too much to bear I think it's so interesting what we bring to different books at mm. different points in our reading life because of our lived life yeah it's interesting isn't it and I you know I was a very gloomy teenager so I, I was definitely on the lookout for for gloom um which I think is why Angela Carter really appealed to me as well the sort of darkness of the romantic relationships there as well they weren't wonderful or affirming they were awful and abusive <laughs> like I I wanted to dwell in that that was that was the place I wanted to live in I don't enjoy that so much anymore I have to say and I I actually get quite frustrated now with a lot of novels that refuse to to sort of see the fundamental humor that runs through everyday life like I I just don't think you've told the truth until you've shown the funny bits as well as the tragic bits. I completely agree. And I think about that a lot, that humans are funny and it's how we survive. And there there have to be those pinpricks of light getting yeah. into everything, even the very serious stuff, because no one lives mm. in such a heavy way. Yeah, I struggle with it in my own work, actually, because, you know, the stuff I write about is quite serious, but... I always try and inject some humour in there too, because I do think that we, you know, we'll laugh at the gates of death. Honestly, that's what we do. We we find something in every moment, and that's how we get by moment to moment. It it just it lightens the load. So I'm I'm always looking for that, and I always like get fed up about how serious my work ends up being. To be honest, I'd I'd really love deeply to be a comic writer, you know. <laughs> I want to be Nora Ephron and I am not, apparently. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, that might be. 
happening in the future. And I, and I, you know, felt there's lots of warmth and light and you know brightness in the in the darkness and the stillness. Yeah. What are your favourite comic novels? Uh, Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. I just adore. I think I love all of Sue Townsend's work. I think she was a really strong early inspiration for me as a writer because there's this here's this like woman who writes about working class life and it it all felt so identifiable to me um but i was bought the secret diary when i was maybe 10 and at the time on that first reading Adrian Mole seemed to me to be this incredibly clever, glamorous teenager that I wanted to be. Like, I didn't get any of the irony in it at all. I thought he was so cool. And when he said he was an intellectual, I just straightforwardly believed him. And, <laughs> and, but then I kind of, I reread it every year since and I still reread it really regularly now. It's like my true comfort book that I can bounce into when I'm feeling fed up. And I and it just it uncovered different layers and it's such a cleverly written book. I just think she is has been too easily forgotten. You know, she must have died about 10 years ago, I think, or maybe longer. She was a genius and she was a very understated genius. And she she wrote brilliant memoir. She wrote uh, The Queen and I, which was fantastic sort of satire of the royal family she wrote wonderful columns. I, she's just a, a, this in, extraordinary writer. Um, and I, yeah, I'd, I'd quite like to start the campaign to reinstate Sue Townsend in the, in the firmament of writers, actually. Well, I will follow you with an enormous <laughs> banner. She is truly incredible. And I think she's one of those writers where, you know, when people talk about domestic fiction in quite mm. a dismissive way, course, and you think, no, yeah. there is nothing smarter or brighter or more fascinating than capturing the way we live and all of that social light and shade with such accuracy and I think again I remember you know the first time I read it missing so much of the stuff about his parents (laughs) and their relationship and the miserable time his mum was having and how Pauline is trying to prevail and find herself whilst living with like the most narcissistic teenager in the world But but isn't she like, I don't know, as an adult now, I look at her and the way she strives to become something. I mean, it's almost like educating Rita or something. She's this ultimate working class 80s woman, actually. And she she betters herself genuinely. Um, but she's reaching for this feminist consciousness that wasn't quite available to her and I and that was the truth you know it's so interesting isn't it seeing that in Pauline and in Adrian because I remember being you know most of the books I was reading there aren't many books about people who are bored of their lives and wishing their lives were different which is you know there are some and they're wonderful and I you know think Diary of a Nobody is sort of a Mm, clear mm. reference there but I found that really kind of comforting and inspiring and I felt very seen having been like oh here are all the children's books about children having adventures here's someone at home desperately wishing they were and I suppose seeing Pauline mirroring Adrian and yet also I think you know everyone who is quiet and bookish and feels a bit Mm. left out and left behind by the world um you know we're the perfect audience because we're the ones who are reading yeah absolutely and I also, I mean, I think Adrian is like, I think he's five years older than me or so. And I, so I kind of followed him through all the books. And 
you know, ultimately it became, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm always choked up because actually I, I followed him through life and I, I'm very attached to that character. I, I strongly relate. And I, at the time he was like the only character I'd read whose parents were divorced, which apart from Lottie and Lisa, which I was another book that I picked up in the school library and love, but yeah, there was this there was this kid who was dealing with the same issues that that I was, and I felt like a forgotten intellectual too, frankly. Um, and I, you know, I just hoped that I could send poetry to the BBC like he was. <laughs> I mean, that's that's still an ambition, I think. Oh, for many I, I of could us. give it a go. Yeah, I don't suppose they'd I write don't back know Lottie and Lisa. I'm trying to think. There was a film based on it, but but it was based on an original German novel called Lottie and Lisa, and they were twin daughters whose their parents had divorced and one had gone to one parent and one had gone to the other and they didn't know each other existed and then for some reason they came to realise they existed and then they try and get their parents back together. When I was at primary school I was so hungry for things to read that I would literally read whatever you put in front of me and it was you know that was just one of the books that I got my hands on and and then I went back to reading the back of shampoo bottles which I did a lot of. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that, like, lining up to go into the hall for assembly and memorising signs that said things like, this door should be kept locked shut yes. when not in use. Yes. Just to... We were so bored. There were no phones. Like, what did we do? We read anything, like anything you put in front of me. And I, and I remember about that time as well. Um, my next door neighbour was throwing out a box of books and just offered them to me. And, you know, like I read a random travel memoir that was just not, in any way interesting to a 10 year old girl but I had it like it was mine you know and a book on photography (laughs) I just if there were words there I'd I'd read them yeah these all sound like quite they're wholesome and nourishing it wasn't I think they were quite boring I mean I don't think it was like I don't think it was interesting I think they were quite dull but um there was a reason they were being thrown out (laughs) yeah yeah even for him he was like no just a step too far I was wondering whether there's any particular reading experience or any book that made you think I am going to be a writer. It's funny actually because I think I think my urge to be a writer kind of actually predates me being a reader. I think the urge to write came first for me. I just always wanted to tell stories, just always always. It was more like I would read books and think, "Oh, maybe I could do this, like, or maybe that's the route. So every time I read a new thing, I'd kind of consider it as a genre, (laughs) as a potential genre. Um, But I loved writing poems. So um, that was, that was something that I did all through my childhood. And I, like, I don't think that came from reading any poems particularly. Um, But then one of the books I took out of Chatham Library was Sylvia Plath again hit me at the at that that sweet spot you know where I just thought oh wow she's like so doomed and dark and thoughtful and like oh wow you know and she's talking about sex and she's talking about like having a female body and it's all it all seemed to me like this glorious code about being female that was only intercepted by certain people um and yeah I I really wanted to be so I love that because I think as well, you know, for teenage girls, I remember being so dazzled by her, but also thinking, oh, like whenever I write a poem, it's quite wordy and quite intense and, you know, nothing goes undescribed. And then thinking, oh, but there's this sort of 
lyricism between the gaps and she's yeah. very stylish and she's very she's kind of an economist and sometimes she does really really mm. go for it but that's when it stands out that's that's when they tend to fail a bit her poems i think it's it's when but she's also she's quite a riddler isn't she like there's quite a lot of her poems she's dancing around the meaning i think i read so little poetry that i believed that that's what poetry had to be that it had to be quite like enigmatic almost um and so i i think that led me to write some poetry that was deliberately obscure rather than rather than like having any kind of authentic expression to it but yeah I I I remember I was obsessed with Sylvia Plath and then I was friends with this girl who was like an uber fan um and she had uh she was she was essentially stalking Kate Bush I mean let's not put too fine a point on it she was like (laughs) she was uh she managed to turn up to Kate Bush's dad's house and have tea with him um and and eventually yeah she was like she was the most persistent person you have ever met and I think I you know I was 13 and think she was 14 um and she literally had this laser focus and she figured stuff out and when she when she'd done she'd been into Madonna before then and I think she'd got quite a way into like Madonna's inner circle <laughs> um and, and then and then Kate Bush and she eventually Kate Bush's dad in, introduced her to Kate Bush um and then she started uh, stalking Tori Amos instead I mean I'm using stalking really broadly but I, I do wonder how it felt to the people on the receiving end of her very, very ardent attentions. Um, it is quite a lot <laughs> to find someone's dad. How did she find his address? But interesting as well that as soon as she got what she wanted, she, she moved, on. moved on. It <laughs> didn't intensify on. her obsession. It fulfilled something. I would love to know what she's up to now, but I suspect she's still got very intense feelings about someone. I'd, I'd love I was to wondering know if maybe she's joined the police forces. That's the detective <laughs> skill, I think. Uh, that's it's kind of part of that intense teenage girl magic isn't it that the the depths of love that you can fall Mm. into and the depths of obsession that you can reach um I hope the people concerned didn't find her creepy because I I do think it it really came from a, a place of like deep deep fascination um, but, I, you know, like we all used to share our intense poetry and she was trying to be Kate Bush and I was trying to be Sylvia Plath. And, you know, <laughs> that was uh, that was that was what we did. That was how we occupied ourselves, really, when we weren't drinking cheap cider. <laughs> but that's a huge intimate thing, isn't it, to to write the poems and share the poems? I mean, do you think yeah. if in a different time and world, would you have stalked Sylvia Plath? Would you have... <sighs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I still, I still love her now. But I, I think around about that time, like I picked up some kind of adult sneering about those kind of writers. Um, And because we that was the other thing, we were all very obsessed with Carrie, Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher's writing rather than anything to do with Star Wars. I mean, we didn't care about that. Um, But, but there was this kind of feeling that it was a little bit naff to get this deep into these artists who were so concerned with female feeling you know and and that that went across poetry and the music we were listening to and it was all a bit like crying over having your period as other people saw it and I I kind of absorbed that and I like I pushed it away because I realized that to the adults it seemed very immature 
And now I feel okay about it all over again. Now I'm a grown up because I actually think we needed that affirmation. You know, we needed to hear those people talking about like stuff that that actually the current generation really get to talk about, like being sexually harassed all the time, (laughs) all the way through your life and being treated really badly and being really diminished and your body feeling so alien to you and like why wouldn't we have wanted to read and talk about that it it makes it makes no sense at all yeah Mm. I think we're told so quickly like if you want to be taken seriously and protect yourselves you join in with the sneering oh god but Carrie Fisher though I think I still read postcards from the edge at least annually I need to do that I've not read it since I was a teenager I would actually love to reread it I I think she's a great writer I I just I think it's (laughs) You get the observations of it and the way... And what's amazing, I think, about that book in particular is it's very much about her and it's got a kind of... Um, obviously, it's not a memoir, it's fiction. It's got a bit of an auto-fiction feel. I think, but... I think I read it as memoir. When I, like, I think I read it straightforwardly as memoir, honestly. Because she also <laughs> writes this other awful character, Alex, this guy at rehab, and she's brilliantly, brilliantly vicious and kind of has his writes as this guy and does it so well and does such a great job of it and such a number on him and it's just she's being treated for addictions where you know the nature of addiction is very much you know one tends to become quite self-obsessed and she just she skewers that world with such elegance I don't need to tell you this you've read it but I'm no I think it holds up I'm still still dazzled by it (laughs) but I, I I was in pieces when she died and that was very mysterious to my husband who is a big, big Star Wars geek and who was like, wait, like you literally leave the room whenever I watch Star Wars. It's like, it's not about Star Wars, you know, it's about her amazing books. Yeah. And also like the amazing, the amazing witness she brought to mental health at a time when it was definitely not in the mainstream and it was definitely not sanctioned to talk about, you know being bipolar or being addicted or just struggling um and yeah I she was a she was a teenage girl hero for me without a doubt quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti reflective, scratch resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered. 
we'll be back with Catherine soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen How to Feel Better by Cathy Rensenbrink. This is a revised version of Cathy's book, A Manual for Heartache, and it's beautiful. It's what Anne Patchett would call a nightstand book. It's filled with love, kindness, warmth, and genuinely useful, practical and emotional advice for coping with disasters and disastrous feelings. There's also some bonus advice from other authors about what they do to feel better, including words from former guests Kate Moss, Pandora Sykes, and your good friend me. How to Feel Better is published by Pam McMillan and out now. Now, back to Catherine. Your brilliant writing, and I think you write so beautifully about neurodivergence, but also the the nuances of it, of mental health and what we call mental health, which I think is fairly new, but because that feels like it occupies this space, you know, on shelves and heads and hearts in a way that it never used to. I find it quite Mm. difficult to remember that even 10 years ago, that wasn't happening like it's happening now. Oh God, I, I mean, I, at the time like as a teenager because I did suffer from depression as a teenager and and also like an eating disorder and self-harm so like that was all blowing around in my mind and the only place I found a mirror of that was actually in music mainly like I was deeply into hole before they became like a bit soft rock like I liked the early like really punky hole that's so weird because I was <laughs> thinking about hole but also like the fact that Courtney Love had done an English degree I was so excited by that I was like god Courtney Love must really love books you know you know how you sort of fantasize about people when <laughs> and yeah like Polly Harvey and like Babes in Toyland I was a big fan of and all of these women talking about being a bit of a mess. And I I needed someone to, to be talking about that. And I think it was probably around about that time that I was reading Jenny Diskey's work, I think probably in The Guardian. I remember reading the, the sort of early essay of Skating to Antarctica and just, oh, wow, you know. <laughs> and yeah, it's that kind of whole body response but I it took a while for books to catch up I mean Prozac Nation was really big but I never I felt like I could never read that I I couldn't approach it it didn't it didn't seem to quite speak to me very first time about six months ago because I I was always so curious about it and I was kind of it's weirdly hard to get hold of now you can't just you know get it on a kindle I still don't know how I feel about it. I still don't know what to make about it. It's like, it's really, 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 really funny in places. She's also quite hard to love. You know, think of the beginning of The Bell Jar. And there is this bit of me that, loving that book, is also like, well, why couldn't you have just had a lovely time working on the magazine like everyone else? Because (laughs) I would love to do that. And I'd love to be on the rooftop. And I just... (laughs) I'd manage to suppress my inner darkness if I had that opportunity, which, you know, realistically, <laughs> probably not. But Prozac Nation does glamorise and sensationalise. And I think the best mental health writing is yeah. universal mental health writing. And it's about connection and it's about saying the lie this illness tells us is that yeah. we're so alone and we couldn't be less alone. We all suffer and we all struggle. And it's mm. that anything that is so so self-obsessed again you know like that's why postcards from the edge is so miraculous because you're sort of expecting it to be one note albeit a brilliant note and it isn't mm. at all I've, I've just finished um alan rickman's diaries and oh yeah i read some excerpts i haven't read the whole thing were they good i loved them and i'm really sad <laughs> that he's gone and i really yeah. really 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 miss him more than i did before but his 
most common kind of criticism or complaint is he gets very upset when he meets someone who's not curious about other people mm. and he doesn't ask any questions. And obviously, in his line of work, that came up a lot. And it did make me think mm. about the value of curiosity as a writer. And I suppose in maybe in memoir and when, when you're writing about yourself, it's even more vital. Yes, but there there is that sense of like the obligation or not the obligation but the need to find balance and the need to on one hand like understand the limits of what your perception's offering you but also to be able to like step outside a little but without second guessing other people it's it's really complicated and I I think about that a lot as a memoirist that you know there's a power embedded in in what I write um over other people and it might not seem like a very big power but you are fixing an image of someone else onto a page that's going to be offered to complete strangers and it's really easy to abuse that you know it's it's really tempting to exact your revenge on certain people (laughs) or to you know or, or to make fun of people um and I yeah I think I think about that a lot when I'm writing and I'm I'm so careful around other people my impression of some books, and maybe unfairly, I've kind of thought this about Prozac Nation, it's about the central person as a as a heroine in a world that is mean to them. <laughs> um, and I'm very suspicious of that because I, like I, for me, my approach is that I should always be the butt of the joke and the mistakes that are made should always be mine because it it doesn't feel like my right to exact revenge on other people's mistakes even if I feel badly about them (laughs) to blow smoke up your ass for a second I mean I think that's why your writing is magical and people connect to it so immediately and so intensely because it's about a full human experience and you inviting your reader in and saying this is me in my full in my fullness and Mm -hmm. you're in your fullness and let's meet on the page together and it's not I think it's about the the people to be welcomed in you know it's the reader and the intimacy of that and I think maybe Prozac Nation did do this a little bit where you feel remote you feel as a reader as though someone's holding Mm. you at arm's length and trying to dazzle and impress you and sort of that odd thing of saying I'm so vulnerable and I'm broken but I'm also hard and shiny and successful and, and I want you to cool. sort of so pity cool. me but think I'm cool <laughs> at the same time I mean that's the problem with so much writing isn't it <laughs> that it it drags you into a grey area morally really because even though you don't fully share the values of the person you're reading you also deeply enjoy being sucked into their universe for a little while yeah it's 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 sexy it really is um have you read any memoirs that you've really loved and been moved by any memoirs that have surprised you oh yeah do you know what I was thinking about what I was going about books I'd tell you about because I read loads of memoir and I I love memoir I mean I just like it's my genre but I just wondered I wondered if you'd ever read this book called A Pillow Book by Suzanne Buffum I do I don't know that book but it looks no. beautiful the cover it's, is I bought the it for the, the cover <laughs> I won't lie I loved the cover and I was like I'll have that but I just want it's you know these books that you want to tell everyone about that really fly under the radar and this is like such a beautiful fresh approach to memoir it's like I don't know distillation of the life of a mother of a young child 
and she's going through all the stuff that I recognise really well about having a baby and that that despair of um, like, will my life ever start again? And, and everyone else's life's carrying on and I'm absolutely stuck now forever. But she does it in a really amazing, non-self-pitying way. And so a third of the book is like this beautifully told uh, sort of prose poem about that. And then another third of it is lists, just lists that she makes in her head, like of books she likes or things she wants to buy or like I've just opened on a page, first world problems, A to Z. So it's really funny. And then it's also about um, the pillow book of a Japanese courtesan, who, which is published, I can't remember the name of her off the top of my head, um, Sei Shonagon's pillow book, which is a, a sort of old Japanese text. And so the three are woven together and it is delightful. So I wanted to recommend that. <laughs> well, I am sold. Made me think a bit of Jenny Offils at the Department of yeah. Speculation. Yes, there is. There's definitely that that levity, but that kind of trenchant levity, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and and you know that slightly surreal edge. Um, and it like it comes back to that what feels real, and like this feels really like the way women talk to each other about their life, but rarely actually recorded onto the page. And that big mixture of feelings that actually, that make up human life. Um, I I loved it. It really it took my breath away. I will try and pick up most memoirs because I love nosing into other people's lives on a basic level. Um, and so, but sometimes they, they just do something fresh. But, you know, on, on another end, I, I really just enjoyed I'm Glad My Mum Died, um, which, have you I read that yet? I am desperate to read that. I'm the last person <laughs> in the world to read it, but I'm so excited about it. Yeah, I listened on audiobook. You know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult read. I have to say, it's... Um, I found the eating disorder stuff in there quite triggering. I think it it really does take you very close to how it feels to be severely restricting calories. Um, And so I wouldn't say it's for everyone. I actually think if you're feeling fragile about that stuff in any way, it might be one to avoid because it it does take you really up close and personal with someone's eating disorder. Um, But I don't know about you, but I'm sort of entranced by these stories of child stars and their pushy mothers. Um... And this one was a really, it was actually quite a balanced portrait of her mother. It's its not a character assassination, but it is a portrait of a relationship with someone who does not have the boundaries that, that you need to be a, a helpful parent um, and who was very unpredictable. Um, and, and then of the fallout from that when she died. So it's it is funny. It's definitely funny. It's definitely very like frank. And, and it feels like a conversation. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty tough in places. You know, there are just so many stories of how thrilling, but how scathing and bruising mm. that experience is and how, um, how destructive. I just read, I do keep talking about it on here, but I loved it, um, Mickey Berenie's memoir. Oh, yeah. I have circled that a little because she was another person that I was, you know, really interested in when I was a teenager and I saw her live a few times. It's tragic and glamorous, so it'll be right up your alley. Yeah, Um, love it, love it. But the honesty of what happens when you're making something purely for fun and purely Mm. for the joy of it, and then that becomes a commercial enterprise and it's very hard to you know, reconcile your relationship with. I really love the way that Elizabeth Gilbert writes about that and about 
She's having so good boundaries around that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was talking to someone recently that's worked with her and, you know, talking about how hard it is to be Elizabeth Gilbert, actually, because the adoration that she attracts in people, I think, makes it very hard for her to be anywhere. Like they were saying that if you're in a room with Elizabeth Gilbert, she will within seconds be surrounded by a group of people who are desperate for her eyes on them. You know, they they just want to be seen by her. I'm not um, saying I wouldn't find her dad's house and track him down, but I wouldn't not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I think you're not alone in that. Um, and I I think it must actually be really like the sheer level of expectation uh, that people have of her. Um, I think must be tough. Like I get a little bit of that and I find it very hard to deal with, but you know, I can't imagine what that's like. I was just reading and I thought, you know, I am in awe and I'm applauding. Um, we're talking about coming off Twitter and yes. people want to, to tell you things and share you things and you mm. making the incredibly, I think sort of mature and grounded and impressive <laughs> decisions. Like I can't, give the response that yeah people I want to give to people so it's actually it just makes more sense for this to not be a, and again that limiting the spaces where you're available in order yeah. to be effective in you know your writing and, and your work and you in the the right places well I mean also just to stay sane really because um I mean, you know, I've written one book about neurodiversity, which, you know, being like being autistic and like that's landed in a world where women who also identify as autistic can't access any services to help them. Um, And so, like, of course, they're going to write me a letter like that's a totally reasonable thing to do, to write a letter to the only other person that you've ever come across whose uh, experiences reflect yours. Um, and then I've written Wintering, which talks to like an even wider range of of life experiences. I, as one human being, just can't can't even reply to them all, let alone process them all. Um, and that I found incredibly hard at first. Um, and I've had to think really hard about it and just put up like really careful insulation around me. <laughs> Um, there were a few months when I was literally nine to five replying to emails and I realised that that just had to had to stop as as like as generous an exchange as that was like you know <laughs> you know that just points to the lack of support that so many different people have out there but I did have to do some careful work on realising that I couldn't personally possibly fulfil that and Twitter was definitely one of the mm. the things that I needed to back out of um, because it was like being hijacked a few times a day by people's very heartfelt need. And someone on my publishing team said to me, you need to think about this. Like, what are you going to do when you get a suicide threat? You know, and that did pull me up short because I, until then I was thinking, look, I can handle this. I can just try and help everybody. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you can't you just can't and it's really awful there's a lot of discussion about how you know the, the dark side of twitter being like oh you know there's, there's so much bullying and abuse and people sort of say dreadful things and there's you know and um, that. but that is also it's being asked invited by people to take on their own vulnerability and you just yeah. can't and i imagine when i've had that with things i've written and people have got in touch and i've said everything 
I was able, everything I am able to say that is helpful is in the book. book. You've got it. Yeah. But also, you know, like, I'm not a magic human being because I've written those books. Like, I've I've written a book about what a mess I am sometimes and how hard I find it. And that's not the same as having the answers to it. Like, that's, you know, Mm. definitely the value of my work lies in me taking you with me to my dark points rather than me going hey no no the dark points are fine here's 10 easy te- steps for you to get out of it like that's just not that's just not the we thought the about having right. a bath and, uh, yeah have a nice bath yeah buy yourself some shoot you know like it <laughs> i really really loved fern brady's memoir which is called strong oh, female yes. character yes and she writes about her autism and her mm. experience in a way that i found really beautiful and gripping and dark and funny and if you've not got to that yet and it's a memoir I think yes I'm looking forward to it because I loved her on Taskmaster same (laughs) I love Taskmaster so much Taskmaster yeah it's definitely our family viewing but I was I was just rooting for Fern all the way through because she's just adorable (laughs) I was hugely moved when on social media she talked about traits she has and things she does that she associates Mm. with autism and Mm. how she has always struggled to make peace with those things and watching her on Taskmaster kind of enabled her to do so. She was, you know what, she, she was really manifestly autistic on Taskmaster in a, in, and in some ways that were really fragile actually, and that were very beautiful. You know, there were moments when she was confused (laughs) about what the hell was going on and it was, it was so obvious um, and I, you know, strongly related to loads of it. Um, but other moments where she kind of showed the delight that she could take in, like the level of obsession she could reach with individual tasks. And I, I think, uh, I hope, although maybe it wasn't, maybe it was kind of really clear to me to see it, and maybe not to the the viewer that doesn't know anything about autism. But I, I would love to use that as like a training document, like here. The instructions are not clear and Fern does not know how to deal with it. You know? <laughs> what could we do to help Fern in this position? You know? <laughs> but yeah, I did, I I did kind of want to hug her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe we can take it into every workplace in the country. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that you were diagnosed in your 30s? 39. So yeah, like right on the, oh. right on the cusp of 40. Oh, wow. And mm. did you ever read any books either sort of novels or, or memoirs or anything where you notice something about yourself or you notice something about the characters or people you're reading about and you thought looking back you're like oh maybe we shared something maybe this is a book <laughs> about autism or some kind of form yeah, of yeah, neurodivergence yeah. that wasn't called that then I mean I've talked today about Sylvia Plath about Adrian Mole about Jenny Diskey <laughs> One of the favourite, like, sports, backstage sports of autistic people is we sit there and we talk about, like, the people that we think were probably autistic, that, that maybe it's not obvious. Um, and I, you know, I, I think almost certainly, as they are now, incidentally, a huge number of writers have always been on the spectrum. Um, and it's it's actually pretty visible in a, in a lot of places. You know, there's a lot of responses uh that that feel very familiar to me um and I, I you know identifying as autistic has has let me kind of go back and understand my attachments to some people I think 
uh, because there's there's definitely that that common common ground. Um, but I wrote an, in uh, Electricity a lot about Jean Rhys, who you know I would I would never posthumously diagnose anyone, but I there is so much in her incredible life story um, that is really recognisable to someone like me, who you know just at times she could not deal with the world and that led to some really appalling behavior on her part um but also people adored her even though she was like this incredibly crotchety difficult woman and that is like a little light shining for me like we're we're kind of slightly loved anyway um albeit begrudgingly um, but yeah, I strongly relate to the bit where she's, uh, you know, throwing milk bottles at anyone that approaches her front door. Like that is, she's just my heroine for that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'd need to check this and this might need careful editing, but we have um, had fun on the podcast. I have a feeling she said that exact thing about Jean Reese, mm. about, you mm. know, exactly as you did reading about those books and about her and, you know, not posthumously diagnosing anyone, but yeah. having that that strong reaction and that feeling. Uh, and I think I said this to Fern, and I'll say it again. Um, <laughs> reading uh, Step to the Diana Atthill memoir. Oh, which I've never read. Okay, is that another? I think that you would <laughs> love it and find it fascinating. It's really good and gossipy about publishing. And she writes about working with Jean Rhys and her extraordinary oh, okay. vulnerability and I'll doing so much to, <laughs> to help her and as you say that being you know so moved through Diana Atthill's recollections about this mm. woman who invited and inspired so much love even though she clearly found it quite difficult to live with herself yeah no absolutely and this kind of sense of anime that comes all the way through her books that you know, that maybe at the beginning of her career, she's blaming it on being from a, you know, from a different country and culture, but that actually you realise just reproduces itself wherever she goes. Um, and there's a beautiful, if you, I, um, it depends how geeky you are about Jean Rhys, but if you read her letters, there's a beautiful moment when her, I think, second husband ends up in prison, when she finds this kind of peace living above a pub in Maidstone, um, because she stops drinking um, and she also stops, I don't know, like him being absent stops the cycle of behaviour that she'd got herself into of like just getting into fights with everybody all the time. And there's this beautiful moment of like peace and reflection and self-acknowledgement that feels like the eye of the storm. And then, of course, it all just kicks off again later. I don't know, there's just something extraordinary about the spirit that means that, you know, Wide Sargasso Sea didn't come out until the very end of her life and she kept the faith right the way through that she could that she could be everything and she was and she is. I love her. That is a really, really moving and beautiful note to end on. I don't want this conversation to ever end <laughs> because I'm having such a wonderful time with you, Catherine. Thank you. I did want to end by asking about any books that you're excited about reading. If there's anything on your pile that you're looking oh, forward to getting to? I always am. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I uh, 
my reading shelf, I'm facing my reading shelf at the moment and it's like an all you can eat buffet right now. Um, but I'm, I, I'm sort of really looking forward to, there's like a crop of lovely memoirs coming out this year. Um, and I'm looking forward to books by Maggie Smith. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Alyssa Altman's book, which is coming out next year, which is on permission. I'm really looking forward to that. But I'm also like my real pleasure in reading is like reading back through time. There are so many books that I'm always <laughs> digging through and discovering. And I I just buy more than I can possibly swallow, unfortunately. So there, there's this constant sense that like stuff is going on that I can't be part of I can't read it all I'm trying really hard um and I yeah I get kind of propelled forward by that really <laughs> it's heaven and hell isn't it that we it's will really die hell. not having read all the books we wish to read but it is also really lovely when there's so much new to just say oh. have that moment of rebellion say I'm not doing it I'm reading a book of essays by Cookie Mueller at the moment that I've just started because I saw the documentary about Nan Golden, All the Beauty okay. and the Bloodshed. Yeah. But it's all about her, you know, making films with John Waters and Divine and living mm. in Baltimore and living in San Francisco and a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs. <laughs> and there's an amazing story about how they have, I think they call it a pill capping party where they're filling up capsules with LSD. But touching the LSD to do this makes you so high that you can only <laughs> make a certain amount of capsules before you've got to go out and just trip through it <laughs> but yeah it's really no it feels like a really wicked but thrilling rebellion to not be reading the 2023 books and be reading a book from I think 1980 something but it, I mean there is a there is a sense that it becomes oppressive as well isn't there that you know, I used to think that maybe I was in with a hope of keeping up with all the books out there. And now I just have to totally acknowledge that I can't possibly. And I used to work as a literary scout. So I genuinely, my job was to try and read the entire global nonfiction market every year. And uh, I think that broke me. I think that, that basically broke me forever. Wow. <laughs> did, you, did you find anything that you loved? Do you have any... Oh, God. Who did you scout? Oh, I mean, we yes. I mean, so many books that I loved. And I am probably more than I'll be able to think of now. But I, you, you know, like you, uh, it's all centred around book fairs. And so um, in the run up to the London Book Fair or the Frankfurt Book Fair, you're reading like five, six books a day. And so quite a lot of them just vanish from your head as soon as you've read them because you you just move on to the next one and there's not time to encode it. Um, but I remember um, reading Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind halfway through an incredibly busy day and just thinking, oh, God, this book is in the process of changing my life right now. And I, I haven't got time, but I, I had to slow down and read it because it was telling me so much stuff that I just didn't know before. That's a, it's a very frustrating job to do because you get absolutely passionate about certain books and nobody else cares um, and other times you read a book and you're like, nah, and they go absolutely wild on the global market. And it, it's, yeah, it's a crazy industry out there. <laughs> Do you know what? For like two years after I finished, I couldn't read any fiction. I just, just lost its magic for me completely because I'd, you, you see the, you see the seams a little bit when you read a lot of books in one go. Um, and so 
it took me a long time to find fiction that felt fresh again and that excited me. Did that feel scary when you weren't drawn yes. to <laughs> really sad. Yeah. the thing you loved? Yeah. And can you remember, was there a book that brought you back? No, it's been, it has been slow, actually. It, it's been really, really slow. And I, um, I mean, one of the things that, that's the salvation for me is like, I read as a writer very differently to reading as a punter. Um, so I've always been able to carry on doing my research reading, you know, like following these lovely little lines of interest. Um, and that constitutes the majority of my reading anyway. But yeah, I mean, one of, I tell you, one of the books that did get me excited again was uh, Miriam Tove's uh, All My Puny Sorrows. Just oh, loved that. I love her. Just loved it really straightforwardly. It was, it was uncomplicated and fun and also really bitterly sad. <laughs> And I, yeah, that felt, that gave me that breath of, of freshness that I really needed. And the other book, which we should have made time to speak about more, that got me really back into fiction, um, was Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, an old one. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, I want to say AJ Pierce. Have um, you read it? The podcast is a fan of Lolly Willows. Have um, you read it? I've not actually. <gasps> I've read her short stories. I've been reading, um, and I think the short stories have winter in them. Yes, but... yes, they do. Yes, yes, I have them. Yeah, they're really great. However, Lolly Willows—that's my will number love one. That book so much. I'm going to talk slowly so that this goes in. You have to read it. You have to read it. It's it's another very neurodivergent book. Uh, but it's about it's about how fucking sick women get in their middle age of all the nonsense that they have to deal with and like running off to the countryside to become a witch. It's awesome. That sounds magnificent. You're That's what I'm it. going to spend the rest of my day doing. <laughs> Catherine, it's just been a joy. Thank you so, so much. Can you hear my really, dog? Really how- Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti reflective, scratch resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Rolling in the background, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thank I'd you love so to much. have a dog on the podcast. Oh, wow. well, she'd like that. She's just she's decided to bark at the world. Um, no, thank you. It's been so nice. And I think like you could maybe offer this as therapy that people could just come and chat like about books they love once a week. We'd feel really good afterwards. Oh, <laughs> dream. <laughs> Huge thanks to Catherine. Enchantment is out now. This is a book filled with nourishment and love. It's a kind of magic filter. It leads its readers to see and seek out the good in the world. It's so wise and so timely. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books that Catherine mentioned on our page on bookshop.org. There's a book list and a link in the show notes. Go to acast.com slash book for more information. 
you can find us and follow us at social media at mybooked. Huge thanks to everyone who's given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we would really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Catherine Heine. The problem with being a writer is that you miss a lot of your life wondering if the things that happen to you are good enough to use in a story. And most of the time they're not and you have to make up shit anyway. See you next time.